Well, if you have your Bibles this evening, turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, as we continue our series in Revelation on revealing Jesus and uh, his heart and life for the churches, especially as we're looking at the seven churches in Revelation uh, tonight. We're, in, uh, we're down to the uh, church at Sardis, Revelation chapter 3 and the first six verses. And uh, really, to me, this is really part of the heart of the book of Revelation is what is Jesus saying to the church? And uh, this is where we get that as clear as just about anywhere else in the book of Revelation. So look, if you will, the first six verses as we uh, talk about what Jesus says uh, to the church tonight. And the angel, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, I mentioned last week that uh, sometimes we have a hard time remembering things, especially names. And, and uh, how many of you are having a hard time coming up with the right word for something, right? You, have, you can't get that right word. I shared some of these with you last time. Here's a couple of others that uh, I'll share with you tonight. Uh, one lady said her boyfriend uh, couldn't, or the boyfriend said her girlfriend couldn't come up with a name for, and she called it an angry parade. Anybody know what an angry parade is? Protest. <laughs> a protest. It is kind of an angry parade, isn't it? Yeah, angry parade. Uh, back in the uh, 90s, one guy said that he wanted to go to a Guns N' Roses concert, and his mama wouldn't let him, and he kept saying, I want to go to the Guns N' Roses, I want to go just nag and nag. And finally, she said, you are not going to the Death and Guns concert. <laughs> Death and Guns. Uh, one person said they couldn't remember the name for an animal shelter, and so they called it the Cat Refugee Camp. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, there has been a cat hanging around here today. If any of y'all want to take it home with you or take it to the cat refugee camp, <laughs> y'all can do either one of those things uh, with it. One guy said his dog ran off with his gloves, couldn't, couldn't come up with gloves. And so he ran after him hollering, bring me back my hand shoes. Bring me back my hand shoes. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do, right? Uh, just, um, just one more. And I love this one. I told this one to Laura. I know she would be out tonight. I know she would love this one. Uh, person said, I remember when somebody couldn't come up with a name for a cupcake. And they called it a party muffin. <laughs> and I think Laura and I are going to call them party muffins from now on, right? Well, it's one thing not to be able to come up with a word that you want to be able to say. Something else to not remember what Jesus is saying to us. And as we look at these um, seven churches, we want to remember what Christ is saying to the church. We don't want to forget his words. We've talked about several churches. We talked about four so far. Ephesus, Ephesus was the busy church, but they had left their first love, so they were working, but it wasn't motivated by love like it should be. Then we talked about Smyrna. Smyrna is one of two churches that Jesus had no correction for. Now, Smyrna was persecuted but faithful. The beautiful thing about Smyrna, it comes to the word myrrh, is that which, myrrh is something when it's crushed, it gives off a beautiful smell. And that's really the picture of Jesus when he was crushed. He gave off a beautiful 
of fragrance to the Lord. A Pergamum, that's where Satan's throne was. They were tempted to compromise. I mean, it's a really, really hard place. Attempted to compromise. Thyatira was a place where there was some growth, but they were being tempted by the teaching of the Nicolaitans, teachings of Jezebel. And so they were tempted to be gullible, to follow wrong teaching that led to immorality. Now, we'll come tonight to the church at Sardis. The church at Sardis is a church that had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus said, now, you know, you can take your word for it, my word for it, a book's word for it, somebody else's word for it, but Jesus said that they were spiritually dead. And we're going to see that that didn't include every person. You got to get to verse 4 before you figure it out. There were some in Sardis that were not, but we're going to look at this church and see what it's about. This church had once, or this city had once been a very wealthy city. In fact, several commentaries I was looking at and studying this week I said that in around 550 B.C., the king of, um, of Sardis was a guy named Croesus, and uh, he was so wealthy that there became a saying that's still popular today called, you're as rich as Croesus. Somebody's really, really rich. They're as rich as Croesus. How many of y'all have heard that saying before? Raise your hand. Okay, Joyce has. Well, I feel a lot better because I'd never heard it either. <laughs> Several commentaries. Everybody's heard the term rich as creases. Well, I, I, Joyce, you're the smartest one in here as far as creases is concerned tonight. But anyway, that's the saying of the richest Crete. It was a very you know, wealthy city. Um, it was situated on a, on a long mountain ridgeline. And on that mountain ridgeline, there were several uh, kind of plateaus that jagged out into the valley. And uh, Sardis was situated on one of those plateaus. It was high above the valley, about 1,500 feet in elevation. And because of that, uh, they felt very confident that they were very protected, very, really hard. You might have to climb up to get to the city. So it would be very hard for anybody to overthrow Sardis. And so they're very confident that they were impregnable. Nobody could capture them. But in fact, they did have two times in ancient history where they were actually uh, captured, 549 and 218 B.C. Both times, both times Sardis was captured, it was because the other army scaled the mountains at night when they were asleep. They are overconfident. They felt like they were secure. They had no guards posted. They had no lookouts posted. And so both times that Sardis was captured in ancient history was when they were self-sufficient, when they were overconfident. I think there's a message there that a lot of times we become spiritually lethargic when we're what? When we're overconfident. We feel self-sufficient. We feel like we can handle this thing on our own. And that's when we get most weak. To him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And so we never want to be overconfident confident, think we can handle life. You see, there was something that we alluded to in our discipleship training class tonight. The truth is we never grow to the point where we can handle things on our own. Our flesh never improves. What we grow to do is learn to die to self daily and surrender our lives to Christ and let him live through us. We never, our flesh never improves. It's not a matter of improving as much as it is a matter of learning to trust on a day-by-day -day, uh, basis. Now, by the time that John wrote to Sardis, the city that once had been extremely wealthy was degenerating. It was, um, it was going down. Uh, it was not as uh, wealthy as it once were. In fact, uh, outside of Sardis, just about two miles outside of Sardis, there were some hot springs. 
And in those hot springs, the people of the ancient day felt like that uh, if you went to those hot springs, it's where the pagan gods gave life. And so if you were sick or if you were lethargic or if you lacked vitality, uh, you go to the hot springs and these ancient gods would give you life, give you vitality. And isn't it interesting, in the place where Jesus said, you're dead, was the place where the pagan gods were supposed to give life. And they had the true and living God. They had the life-giving God. And yet Jesus said, y'all are dead. Let's look at that Revelation 3, 1 as we get, dig into the, to the story here. Now, one thing about the church at Sardis, we don't know who founded it. We don't know anybody that was a part of it. We really know virtually nothing about this church except what Jesus says here in Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are in fact dead. Now, when it says he has the seven spirits of God, what he means by that is the Holy Spirit. The words, a lot, of symbol, a lot of symbolism in Revelation, we know that. Um, the number seven to seven is a number of perfection. And we know, and one of the things you get, it helps, especially when there's uh, poetry like in the Psalms or symbolism like Revelation, is to uh, put your interpretation in context of the entire Bible. And we know from the entire Bible there's one Holy Spirit, right? And so the seven spirits is simply symbolic for the Holy Spirit. Uh, some people think that maybe John, of course, the Holy Spirit's inspiring all this, but maybe John is alluding to Isaiah 11.2. Listen to Isaiah 11.2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. If you look at that, there are six characteristics, plus he's called the Spirit of the Lord, which makes seven, which would some people call the sevenfold witness of the Holy Spirit. And so you might get, you get seven there. And so perhaps he's referring to uh, Isaiah 11 too. Whatever it means, we know what it means is that the Holy Spirit is the one Spirit of God. He is the life-giving Spirit. He's the one who dwells in us and brings life to us. Now, look at Revelation 3, 1, the second half of the verse in the New International Version. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you were dead. The message translation says, I see right through your work. You have a reputation for vigor and zest, but you're dead, stone dead. Now, usually Jesus starts off with Ephesus, Thyatira, or Pergamum, a lot of these churches. He'll start off by saying, you're doing these things well. Here's the things that you're doing well. Nevertheless, have something against you. Not so in Sardis. No compliments to start off with. He goes right to the heart of the message here, which is saying what? He's saying your works are not, here it says your works are not perfect. Your works are not complete. The idea is what you're doing is pointless. Because it's not energized by the Holy Spirit. If anything's energized, led, guided, directed by the Holy Spirit, it will have life. Why? He gives life. The Spirit is the one who gives life, right? And so this is a church that somehow, someway, have started depending upon themselves, not depending on the Holy Spirit, not relying on the Holy Spirit. And so all of a sudden, they're doing things, but it's very mechanical. It's very program-oriented. It's not people-oriented. And he says there, there is, it's not, there's no compliment for your works here. What you're doing is absolutely pointless here. Uh, there's no mention of persecution in Smyrna, which is kind of interesting. This was a time of great persecution for the church. Most of the other churches, there's some hint of persecution going on. And I don't know if it 
because they were a little bit sheltered where they were. There's no hint of uh, false teaching going on in the church. But I do know this. I do know one lesson we can get from this, and that is this. It is very easy when things are going easy to take it easy, right? It's very easy when things are kind of easy for you in your life to kind of take it easy with your relationship uh, with the Lord. And so Christ says here, he says, he says, you have a reputation made alive, but you are dead. 1 Timothy 5, 6 says, but the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. And so we're not to live for our own selves, our own, our own wishes, but to live for the wishes of God. That's why we want to be inspired by, guided by, directed by, whether it's uh, uh, me preaching a sermon, a Sunday school teacher teaching a class, a committee leading a group, or whether it's you out there in your job, you and your family. We want to say, Lord, help us to be directed, inspired, having life from you. So look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, New Living Translation. Here's what Jesus says. Wake up! There's a lot of preachers on a Sunday morning like to say that. <laughs> Not me, people in other places. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Uh, some translations say things like your works, or I've not found your works perfect before God. New King James, uh, New International Version says that I've found your deeds unfinished before God. Now, this is Jesus. Just Jesus, see, I'm looking at your works, and I'm not finding them right. I'm not finding them uh, inspired by me, which tells us something. We look to Jesus for things, right? We look to Jesus for forgiveness and for peace and for joy. But Jesus said, you know, I'm looking at y'all, and I'm expecting something from you. I've given you my spirit, I've given you forgiveness, I've given you life, I've given you freedom, I've given you a lot. And he says, your actions are not meeting the requirements of my God, which means what? Christ expects something from his church. He expects fruit, he expects life, he expects witness, he expects us to be on mission with him doing his works. One commentator wrote it this way, the congregation in Sardis was the very reverse of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was put to death and yet lived. Sardis appeared to be alive and yet was dead. Looked like it was alive. Looked like it was good. People thought it was a good church. But if you go outside tonight and look up at the stars, uh, our nearest star is about 4.62 light years away. It's a long ways away, right? Others are much further than that, some six light years away, some, you know, 10 light years, some thousands of light years away. And if you had a telescope... You could look and you could find stars that were actually millions of light years away, which means what? The light that leaves that star takes millions of years to get here. So you could go outside now, probably not, not so with eyes you can see with your, uh, stars you can see with your eyes, but if you could look in a telescope, and it's possible for stars you can see with your eyes, you could go outside and look at light coming to us and the star be dead. The star's already burned out. Now, as I read and studied on that a little bit this week, the scientists say that's probably not true of the stars that you can see. Most of them are, are within 10,000 light years of, of Earth. They would have kind of figured that out. But he said it's very possible if you took a, a telescope, looked into the universe, and see stars that are millions, some even billions of light years away, very possible some of those stars don't even exist anymore. But you still see the light. 
And I think that's something what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis. Your reputation is still going out. You're still doing the programs. People are still talking about you. People still think that you're a great church. But in fact, you're right on the verge of being dead. I mean, he says they're dead, but we're going to find out later here that not all of them are dead. Uh, Jesus is who determines if a church is alive or dead. Just because the program's functioning, just because you got things going on, just because there are activities, doesn't mean the life of Jesus is there. And I, I wondered what it would have been like to have been a part of the church at Sardis. Because if they can be dead, have a reputation for being alive, it has to be true of us today, right? There can be churches today that have a reputation for being alive, and Jesus will look at it and evaluate it and say, you know, it's mostly dead. Think about what would worship be like in a dead church? I think one of two things, I've, as I pray, because I don't, you know, I, I, I've never been to Sardis during this time. It's hard for me to say exactly what it is. But for me, it would either be, worship would either be in a dead church, very mechanical, uh, very lifeless, no energy, no vitality, no meaning, no heart in the worship, or the worship could be very good and very um, talented, but people-centered, performance or performer-centered instead of God-centered. Man, that's some great singing. Boy, that's some great talented musicians. Boy, man, the music was just awesome today. And that may mean the church is really alive or it may mean we're focused on people and entertainment and not on God. What does a prayer life look in a dead church? It probably doesn't have much fervency in it, right? Much vitality in it. And the prayer life may be focused on just routine prayers, what we think people expect us to pray, and not much prayer life on, God, what do you want to do with us? God, we surrender to you. God, not what we want, but what you want. Sunday school class is probably pretty boring in a dead church, right? A lot of talk about what's going on in the world. Maybe not much talk about what God's doing in my life, in your life. Maybe the sermons are pretty boring in a dead church. Maybe entertaining, but not much life of the Holy Spirit. Not so much call for death to self and alive to Christ. The invitation time is probably used for planning for lunch, something like that, right? Committees doing what they think the church expects them to do. Not much spiritual preparation, to get ready for church, giving to impress other people. No expectancy that God's about to do something. So in a dead church, the program may run well. The attendance may be really good. But is there anything that smells like Jesus there? Is there anything that draws people to Christ there? So what happens if you feel like you're in a dead church or you feel like you're kind of losing the life of the Spirit in your own life? What's the recipe for coming out of that? Well, Jesus gives it to us right here to the church at Sardis. It's really a recipe for revival. We look at 2 Corinthians 7, 4, I mean, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 a lot of times. You have my people which are called by my name. And that's a good recipe for revival. This is a really good one as well. This is the New Testament recipe. Look at what he says. He gives five commands, five commands. First of all, wake up. Wake up. And what does he mean by that? Uh, what he means by that being wake up means to pay attention to where you're at. Look at what's going on in your heart and life. Take a serious evaluation of your heart before God. Is your heart alive and open and surrendered to the Holy Spirit? Now, this could be particularly relevant to Sardis because remember, they had been defeated two times, both times when they were asleep at night. And so Jesus is saying, don't sleep, don't spiritually sleepwalk through life. 
Don't spiritually sleepwalk through your kids' elementary school, junior high school, high school. Don't sleepwalk through your marriage. Don't sleepwalk through your job. Wake up and pay attention to what God's doing around you. Care about things. Get involved. Wake up to Jesus and what he's doing. Second thing he said is strengthen what remains. And so here's where we start getting a little bit of hope. Not everything's dead. Some things remain. And he says, strengthen those things. What's he saying? Look, there's some, there's, some thing, there's some things going on. There is some ministry happening at Sardis. There are some people who are alive at Sardis. There are people who are on mission with Christ at Sardis. Not many. Most of them aren't. But the, the things that are good, the things that do have life, get involved. Get on board. Get, make sure those things don't deteriorate any further than they are. Third thing he says is remember what you've received and heard. Now, this would be those foundational, you can't remember everything, right? But he's going to talk about the foundational truths. Remember the basic truths of the gospel. Remember what helped you come alive in Christ and grow in Christ and be on mission with Jesus and experience the life of Christ in your heart. Remember what you those foundational truths in your life. Go back to Christ. Go back to his saving work. He's alive. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Go back to that. And when you go back, back, hold it fast, fourth thing, hold it fast, keep it, cling to it. You know what another word for keep is? Another word for keep is obey. Obey. Go back to those foundational truths that helped you get saved, that helped you grow in Christ, and go back and start obeying that. Go back and start doing that. Go back to Christ. Go back to, it's not about some new fad that's coming along. Go back to Christ and surrendering to him and live that thing out. And then the last part is what? Repent. The only hope for a lifeless church or a lifeless Christian is to turn away from that. Turn to Christ. Turn your back on just self-sufficiency is what I really think he's saying to these guys. Turn your back on self-confidence. Turn your back on the way things are supposed you know, supposed to be or used to be or all that kind of thing and come alive again. Seek God's power, not your efforts. I think that would be the big thing he would tell these guys to repent from. Seek the power of the Holy Spirit, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the life of the Spirit and not your own self-efforts. And then Jesus comes in verse 4, New International Version, and look at what he says here. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Almost every church has somebody in it that loves Jesus. Almost every church, uh, no matter how dead they might appear, how big or how small, almost every church has some people in it that loves Christ, that are alive in Jesus, that are trying to walk with Christ. And so he's trying to encourage those few don't quit. Don't give up. Don't let the fact that a lot of people around you are kind of dead in Christ, don't, don't let that deter you. And he's going to make them some amazing promises here, some really cool promises here to encourage them uh, to keep going. Look at verse 5. Here's where it starts. Verse 5. The one who is victorious will, be like the, will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Now, the one who is victorious, what does that mean? What does it mean, victorious? Does it mean that you overcome every sin? Well, if that's what it means, we're in trouble. <laughs> it means that, um, that, you know, you never give in to Satan ever again the rest of your life. If you believe that, then that's a pretty 
tough st- Fortunately, John, who wrote Revelation, who also wrote 1 John, tells us what it is in 1 John 5, 4. For everyone born of God overcomes. He's victorious. He overcomes the world. How? This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Victorious, overcoming the world is what? Staying true to your faith that Christ is your Savior, that Christ is your Lord, that Christ has forgiven you. It's centered in Christ. And then he's saying, I believe to these these faithful few that are hanging on in, in Sardis, that are living for him in Sardis, is saying, look, this has been a hard word for the church. Those of you who are alive, don't get freaked out by the judgment. Don't get freaked out by the hard words here. I've got great promises for you. And one of those promises is, he says in uh, verse 5, he says, and they will walk with me. He promises close friendship. And that ought to be reward enough. There's no other reward that we have for the Christian life. The fact that we can share life with Jesus, that we can walk with. And the word walk is a great word because it's what? It's one step at a time. It's one day at a time, one hour at a time. Whatever happens in this moment, you get to share it with Jesus. And, you know, we say that a lot, so sometimes I think we kind of forget what a powerful word that is, that the God of the universe is willing to walk with us. And then he says they will be dressed in white. They'll be dressed with the one who's victorious, one who doesn't compromise, one who keeps his faith in Christ. They'll be dressed in white. And that, I think there's two possible interpretations, and I think you can use both of them. Uh, one is purity. You know, because of Christ, we've been given the robes of his righteousness. You know, we trade in our sinful robes, for the, and God says he's dressed us in the, in the righteousness of Jesus. And so it stands for purity. But, right, but um, white in the ancient world also stood for victory. And honestly, when I started studying this passage, I really kind of dismissed the victory thing. I really thought it stood for uh, righteousness and holiness, dressed in the righteousness of Jesus. Well, that's taught so many other places in Scripture. That is a very valid interpretation. But if you look at it here, it says, for the one who is victorious will be dressed in white. And so the idea of being a victory parade, kind of like you're in Christ's victory parade, is a very strong, legitimate interpretation as well. And then he comes and says, I will never blot their names out. I will never blot out their names. And that is a great word of security and grace for the believer, that your name will never be taken out of the Lamb's book of life. Your name will never be blotted out. You see, in the ancient John's day, the king would typically have a register of all the people in his city. And uh, he probably didn't keep it himself. He probably had an attendant that kept the registry for him. But in that registry were all the names of the people in the city. If someone died, their names were taken out of the city registry. Also, if you committed a crime and you were sent to jail, your name might be taken out of the registry. And Jesus is saying, your name never gets taken out. It doesn't matter if you die. You're still with me. It doesn't matter if you committed a crime. You've been forgiven. Your name will never be taken out. And sometimes people will look at this and say, well, will God blot my name out? Or they live in fear that God might blot their name out. Don't take a promise and make it a threat. <laughs> the promise is, I won't. Now, the reason sometimes people 
freak out about that a little bit is because in Exodus 32, uh, Moses talks about, you know, if you're not going to go with us, then blot my name out of your book. And, and God talks about blotting some of the Israelites out of the name of his book. That book is not the book of life. That's not talking about heaven. That's talking about people that are alive. What Moses is saying when he says, blot me out of your book, he's not saying, don't let me be one of your children. He's saying, if you're not going to go with us with, into the promised land, just let me die here. And when God says, and the issue in Exodus 32 is the golden calf issue where some of the people perished. And so they got taken out of the, out of the registry of the living. Okay? It's not talking about security in Christ. This is, this, doesn't ha- this is not referring to that. This is talking about Jesus' promise that it doesn't matter what happened. You will never be blotted out of my book. And that's his promise to those who stay true to him. And then Revelation chapter 3, verse 6 says what? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Tonight, the good news for us is as believers... Christ offers life. Doesn't just offer rules. Doesn't just offer church attendance. Doesn't just offer, you know, church involvement. He offers life from God himself. And I want to close with a story that probably a lot of you have heard about uh, recently. Um, The article I'm referring to comes from um, February the uh, the 13th. Uh, It's by a professor at uh, Asbury Seminary. He's right across the street from Asbury College. If you've heard about the revival going on at Asbury College. And this is what uh, he writes. He writes, most Wednesday mornings at Asbury University are like any other. A few minutes before 10, people, students begin to gather for chapel. They're required to go to chapel a certain number of times a week. And uh, so they gather to go to, to, go to chapel. And so uh, they show up as a matter of routine. It's not a super spiritual thing. It's just you got to go to chapel so many times. So they show up. But on February the 8th, on a Wednesday February the 8th, he said it was different. After the benediction, the choir began to sing a final chorus, and then something began to happen that defies easy description. Students did not leave. They were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense of transcendence, and they did not want to go. They stayed and continued to worship, and he's writing five days later, and he wrote, and they are still there and they're still there he said I teach theology across the street at Asbury Seminary and when I heard what was happening I immediately decided to go to the chapel to see for myself when I arrived I saw hundreds of students singing quietly they were praising and praying earnestly for themselves our neighbors our world expressing a repentance and contrition for sin interceding for healing wholeness, peace, justice. Some were reading and reciting in Scripture. Some were clustered in small groups uh, praying together. Some were kneeling at the altar, a few kneeling at the altar in front of the auditorium. Some were laying prostrate uh, in the aisles. And he said, I stayed there uh, for most of the afternoon when I left. He said, they were, they were still there. When I came back in the evening, they were, they were still there. And he said, multiple days, I saw students running to the chapel running to get into the presence of God. By Thursday evening, they were standing room only. Students had begun to arrive from other universities, from Kentucky, Cumberland, Purdue, Indiana, uh, other universities. He said, on Saturday morning, I had a hard time finding a seat, and by evening, the building was packed beyond capacity. Every night, some students stayed and prayed through the night. And truth be told, and here's what he says. He said, as a theologian... He said, I'm very aware of hype. 
I'm very aware of fanaticism. I'm very aware of things trying to get worked up and that kind of stuff. And he said, this is nothing like that. There's no pressure. There's no hype. There's no manipulation. There's no high-pitched emotional fervor. There's hardly any preaching. I've, you can live stream some of it. There's hardly any preaching uh, going on. So to the contrary, it's mostly calm and serene. There's a mix of hope and joy and peace that's indescribably strong and indeed almost palpable. Rob Jackson, some of you know, remember Rob preached our revival this last uh, year. Uh, he wrote an article. He went uh, a, a few days back. He went wrote an article about, for the Baptist Press about what was going on at Asbury. And uh, his dad, Asbury had a big revival back in the 1970s, and Rob's dad was profoundly impacted by that revival at Asbury. So Rob has roots there and that revival. He wanted to go, so he went, and this is what he said. He said, I went as an observer but was quickly overwhelmed by the presence of God. I knelt by a side window and tears flowed down my cheeks as I prayed for a more intimate walk with him. As I wiped the tears away and stood up, I noticed people lying prostrate up and down the aisles. One college student near me was on her face crying out to God in repentance. He said, I stood and knelt for hours. And he said, when I looked at my watch, it seemed like it had just been a few minutes. I did not realize how long I had been there he said it was 11 p.m at night hours had passed and he said I can't say you know what happens for everybody this is what Rob wrote I only know that I experienced Christ and left uplifted and encouraged would you stand please with heads bowed and eyes closed the message is not let's try to repeat what happened at Asbury the message is for us to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit speaks and nudges to go with him, not try to produce something, not try to make up something, not try to work up something, not try to work up emotions, but to truly expect and believe and rely and trust that God gives us life, life abundantly, life more than we could imagine. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray tonight that you would breathe fresh life into each of our hearts in the Hopewell Church. Lord, whether we have a reputation for being alive or not really doesn't matter. What matters is what you think. We pray that your life would be expressed through each one of us, through each one of us, Lord, and that you would look and be pleased at what you're doing in our hearts and lives. With heads bowed and eyes closed, at least he begins to play softly. Talk to Jesus about life.